Hey, Carrie, how is it with your soul today? Hey, Parker, so good to talk to you today. Uh, it goes all right, um, but I'm feeling a lot of being in process, a lot of, you know, coming out of COVID, looking at relationships, community, what that all means. Uh, how about you? Is everything settled and enlightened in your world? Oh, absolutely. So we could end the podcast right here. <laughs> But instead, let's welcome each other and our audience to the growing edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit between us, and to us and how we live between the So we're calling today's conversation, All Real Living is Meeting, Is Community Possible? And um, that phrase, All Real Living is Meeting, is a a quote from Martin Buber that uh, I ran across in the mid-70s. I was living in an intentional community called Pendle Hill, a Quaker community near Philadelphia, where about 80 people lived a daily round of life together. I lived there for 11 years. It had a huge impact on my life. And one day, early on in my stay, uh, walking uh, along a path that had a flower garden at the side, I saw that someone had planted a sign in the middle of the garden that had this boober quote on it, all real living is meeting. And because I was... I think in my mid-30s, I was very much searching for a good life. I was searching for meaning, purpose, vocation. Um, And I was living in an intentional community. That quote really grabbed me. What does it mean, all real living is meeting? Mm -hmm. And I don't think a day has gone by since then, over the past really 50 years, when I haven't thought in one way or another about what it means to meet another person, or meet other people, to come together in a space that allows us to come together with personal integrity, with honesty, shared hope, with vision, with creative possibility. I've been really fascinated by this notion of the space between us and how we hold that space. Because If all real living is meeting, then that means holding the space between us in a way that's generative of life. And I think we have have many, many experiences and examples of meetings between people that are not generative of life. So it's, I think that's a little bit at least of what we want to wrestle with today uh, as we talk about community. Thank you, Parker. I love, I love hearing the story of how you encountered that phrase. You know, all real living is meeting. Is community possible? And, and I think that's part of this restlessness, this in-process feeling that I've been having too, um, that as we come out of COVID, you know, coming back into community, I, we, we've kind of lost some of our community chops. I mean, we're a little rusty at it. And not only are we a little rusty, um, we're also, I think, many of us reconsidering and assessing, you know, what does it mean to be in community? 
How do I want to participate? And not all community is generative. Not all community is life-giving. So looking at these these different kinds of spaces we're ent- entering into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you've, you've just said a lot. I think that we, that we could unpack for just a minute, which, you know, for one thing, coming out of COVID means coming out of a global experience of massive number of deaths. And Mm -hmm. all of the very fundamental questions that raises about meaning, purpose, and vocation. Why are we here? Why am I here? And also a powerful recognition that that we cannot do this alone. We cannot do this thing called life alone. We really are communal creatures, but we don't want the same old, same old in our, in, in our communities of membership or reference as we had pre-COVID, where a lot of us, I think a lot of people feel like they were just going through the motions of community. Yeah. And it wasn't life that was being generated, but some kind of, um, I don't know, r- ritual act that was being played out in a kind of mechanical way. And, and so people are looking for a depth and an intensity of life in community. And, and as you said, Carrie, it's really important to recognize that community is not always a good thing. It takes toxic forms in human history, as we all know. Uh, to use uh, an extreme example from contemporary life from the last hundred years, the Third Reich was a form of community. White supremacy is a form of community. We even have in this country a political movement that is a form of community for many people that they're hanging on to for dear life because they feel that it brings them meaning. But it's a form of community that essentially wants a a lawless society where the emphasis is on the freedom of the individual to do anything he or she wants uh, you know, including owning weapons of mass destruction and not having to be trained in them or licensed to use them. This is a very complicated topic, in, especially in American culture and in the context of American history, where we've always been torn from the very beginning between a mythos of community and a strong drive towards rugged individualism, Yeah, you know, towards the individual frontiersman who hacks a new world out of the forest with his or his mainly bare hands. But at the same time, as, as that movement of westward expansion went, went forward, from day one, we were destroying the community that was here when we came to this country, mm-hmm. the community yeah. of native peoples. And we were building a new, quote, community on the backs of enslaved human beings who didn't count because they didn't look like us and they were from someplace we've never been and didn't care about. Um, And they formed the literal backbone of the American economy. I I don't think I'm saying anything that a lot of folks in our audience won't already know, but I just think as we get into this conversation about community, it's really important to look at it from various angles and understand the complexity of what it is we're, that we're reaching for when we talk about creating spaces between us that are generative of life. 
And I think, I think there's a longing right now. I've been having a lot of conversations about this longing. You know, like there's the push and the pull. You know, the the pull of individualism and the pull of that mythos of community. But you know, I've been having a lot of conversations about that longing, not just for a space. You know, I said some spaces are generative, some are not. We create all kinds of spaces. And, um, you know, we create a space where um, we can dialogue, you know, uh, that we can do education, that we can do therapeutic kind of uh, emotional um, um, uh, exploration. You know, there's problem-solving circles. You know, we, we have a lot of different ways that we come together. But I think the longing that I've been hearing and, and feeling myself are for spaces where it feels um, welcoming for the soul to show up, the soul mm-hmm. to show up vulnerably and authentically um, and be in process of becoming who I am. Um, does that make mm-hmm. sense? It absolutely makes sense to me, Carrie, and and it, I think it overlaps, you know, with experiences that both you and I have in the work we do, yes. where we mm-hmm. we try to create spaces of this sort. We do it in, perhaps in different ways, but always the intent of these spaces with whoever we're working with is is to create a safe space where people can also be vulnerable and courageous about telling the truth of their lives. I don't think I, I don't think there's any worse way to live than to be living in a context where you feel like you you have to keep your own truth tucked away day in yes. and day out for yeah. the rest of your life, and that whatever acceptance you're getting is not acceptance of your true self, your your true struggles, your true fears, as well as your true hopes, because you, you don't you're too afraid to to share all of that or to put all of that out into the world for fear of being rejected. And and so, yes, the longing for the soul to show up, the longing for identity and integrity to show up, you know, the, the longing to have something emerge between us that is honest and, and truthful and still evocative and creative, uh, it doesn't end up in a in a pity party or a gripe session, it, yeah. it, it ends up kind of, you know, composting the ground mm-hmm. with the ordinariness of our own struggles in life in a way that allows seeds of, of new life to grow. I, th- I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and I think about a couple of specific things that both of us have been involved with, um, you know, very directly, uh, creating circles of trust and uh, uh, being a founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal. Um, the circles of trust is a, uh, a, a process, a method of, of creating space for the soul to show up, for growth to happen um, in, uh, personally and through this gathered community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think of every... Every performance I do or workshop I do, um, as having that same sort of sense, you know, a song is three and a half minutes of empathy. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's there's a place I try to create spaces of of welcome. Of um, it's okay to show up here as a human mm-hmm. being. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, and, and also different kinds of projects I've been involved with, servicespace.org being one of them. Um, they have uh, an incredible a program called um, Pods, which, you know, it's an online program. But I'm kind of going back to Circles of Trust. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because that was a really direct um, effort to create the kind of space that you're that we're talking about, that as we go into this new world of all of us saying, what is community? And how do I, how do I tap into generative community? I'd be glad to say a few words about Circles of Trust, Carrie, uh, and I'd love to hear more from you about service space, because I know that's been a very important involvement for you. So what I want to say about Circles of Trust is that uh, this is work I've been doing for 25 years through the Center for Courage and Renewal. We have several hundred facilitators who run Circles of Trust all over this country and in other places in the world. We've worked with tens of thousands of people. So I know that this is not a pipe dream that we're talking yeah. about here because the, the, the core of our work, to put it in one way, is to be highly intentional about what it means to bring, for example, 25 people together for a two and a half day weekend retreat where you create safe space for people to do all of the things that we've been talking about to express their own identity and integrity, to reclaim their own identity and integrity, to listen to what I would call their inner teacher, their, their, their soul, um, and, and respond to the claims that it's making on their lives. Yeah. You know, there's always something in us that's saying, you're not quite on the right track here, or you're on the right track, but you need to dig deeper for the courage to take the next step. Uh, there's a voice in us that's, that is trying to guide us, but we are rarely in spaces that involve other people where we can listen more carefully to that voice, where those other people keep, know how to help us listen more deeply to that voice and respond to its claims on our lives. So we do that. I'll give a quick example. We, we do a Quaker exercise called a clearness committee, yeah. where for two hours, a group of five or six people sit with one person who's wrestling with a problem. And to put it very simply, for two hours, those five or six people cannot speak to the focus person, the person with a problem, in any, any way that involves fixing, advising, saving, or correcting the focused person. Yeah. So unlike our normal discourse, where we keep blowing each other out of the water by listening for three minutes to a problem someone is struggling with, and then saying, hey, here's what I'd do, or here's what my uncle did, or here's a book you ought to read, or a diet you ought to try. Um, yeah. Instead of... All, all of which are behaviors that make the other person, the focused person, feel unheard and unseen. Instead of doing that, we hold that person in a context of honest, open questions, which are the only form of speech that the members of this committee are allowed to engage in. When I teach the process, I'm famous for saying, because it's the best example I know, 
I'm famous for saying, have you thought about seeing a therapist is not an honest open question. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's an advice in disguise. And if you listen carefully to our normal conversations, you'll be amazed at how many advices in disguise we slipped to each other by means of questions that aren't honest and open. Have you read this book? is not an honest, open question. It's really a statement, you ought to read this book. And I think one of the reasons that people have a hard time believing that the kind of spaces between us that I'm talking about are possible, yeah. because they've stepped into so many spaces where something very different has happened, 180 degrees different, yeah. where instead of being heard into deeper and deeper speech by the people sitting with them, they have suddenly found these people trying to fix them, trying to save them, trying to correct them, trying to get them on the right track. And that's a toxic space. That is not a space that's generative of new life. And after 25 years of doing this work, I've become allergic, so allergic to spaces where certain basic ground rules aren't honored that I just walk away from them or won't go to them if I have good reason to believe that, that those rules won't, won't be honored. So the other thing I know from 25 years of experience is that there's a huge hunger out there for spaces of this sort, despite the disbelief that they're even possible. A huge hunger. And if more of us in our individual lives, and in our collective lives, we may want to talk later, Carrie, about religious communities and others, that uh, established communities that could adopt more of these practices to help create these kinds of spaces between us. But if more of us would learn these practices and follow them, I think this deep, deep human need that we're talking about to be heard and seen as we are for who we are, so, so not so that we can stay frozen in place, but so that we can grow, yeah. um, would, would come closer to being met. And I think part of what's hard is most people who have you know, encountered in community or imbibed in community at some point encountered toxic community. You know, and um, and I think that's something, too, that, um, you know, is a wrestle right now. Is true generative community possible? And what creates it? You know, so I think sometimes even being able to name what it is that we're trying to do in this community. The thing about circles of trust, and we've done worked with circles of trust in workshops we've done together, retreats we've done together. I've taught Quaker clearness myself. And um, one of the things I think that's powerful about it is that there's an intention and a process mm -hmm. that we all kind of agree to. You know, when you come into that kind of space, you agree that... Even those of us who are really good nurturers and really good problem solvers, and I think when I've worked with uh, people new to that process, that's one of the hardest things. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, my job is to nurture, and I'm pretty good mm -hmm. at it, or I'm a really good problem solver. Just 
give me a problem and I'll help you fix it. Mm -hmm. And especially when that's one of your gifts, how counter and counter to the culture, it feels to, to kind of breathe and step back a little bit and say, that's not really what I'm doing here. You yeah, know? exactly. Brainstorming exactly. later. Brainstorming exactly. later. You this, know? this is a, that's a wonderful point. I'm glad you brought that up because one, I think, nutshell or thumbnail way of describing what we're talking about is that unlike almost every other encounter we have, every other meeting we have in life, where the purpose is for people to have a conversation with each other, Mm-hmm. which too often goes south in the ways we've been describing. The purpose of these processes is to, is to support a person in having a deepening conversation with themselves. Yeah. I'll say that again. The purpose of these processes is to support a person in having a deepening conversation with themselves. And that's an absolutely rare even unique experience in life. Very few people have been given that gift. I think good parents know how to give that gift to their kids, to keep yeah. asking them those honest, open questions that help the, the young person go deeper into what they know to be true but are somehow resisting. Um, and certainly adults can do that with each other. Partners and spouses can do that with each other. Friends can do that with each other. And it's hugely rewarding for, for both parties uh, to, to, to walk away from such a conversation, on the one hand, feeling help, not because you've taken in someone else's advice, but because that person has helped you come closer to your own bedrock, your own true north. Um, and on the other hand, to feel the satisfaction of being able to give another human being that kind of support. There's different gifts we give. Like I said, you know, my my husband, Robert, is a great problem solver. He's a really good problem solver, but he's come to ask me now. I'll be telling him something that's going on. He says, okay, is this where I get to brainstorm? Or <laughs> are we talk, are, are we just going to go in with this one? <laughs> like, what are the, the rules language. here? What yeah, are the rules? Yeah. But he asks me now, and I say, well, I think I just need to have someone really witness today. Yeah. So, okay, when yeah. do I get to brainstorm? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But, but the idea of, of showing up for one another in a way, there's a lot of trust in it. It's like allowing someone to be seen and heard and for who they're becoming and really honoring it, you know, and trusting that. I think both of us have had so many experiences with people that Finding people, encountering people who are finding their own way. You know, it's like they're listening to that deep inner teacher, the truth that they know deep within. Mm-hmm. But it takes a while to, sometimes to get there and to Absolutely. clear away the brush. And, Absolutely. It's the best um, truth we've got, but it's really hard to get to in our noisy, yeah. distracted culture. And and also encountered it in ourselves, you yeah. know, when when... And those who have helped us. So, so yeah, I think these process, there's something really powerful about the Quaker clearness process, the circles of trust. You know, we, we encounter it in different places. And for me, it's been really powerful to seek it out and to realize when, you know, this is not a generative space and um, decide whether or not I want to partake of it. 
does your experience with this wonderful organization called Service Space, you know more about it than I do, but does your experience with them overlap uh, some of these principles and practices? Oh, absolutely. Um, they do these this series of pods. It's an online experience. So people from all over, literally the world, uh, we did something called the Mystical Music Pod. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was there for that. It was wonderful. Four times. But it was really talking about music and exploring music as a community and how that can open up and be part of a spiritual journey. But I think the ground rules, I mean, there's a process that's very intentional in all the service space experiences I've been part of. And in that intentionality, there's a certain kind of respect and a certain kind of uh, holding the space in a way that um, remains safe for people. That doesn't mean you don't ever disagree. I mean, I think that's 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 important too. It's like this is not the place where you're just making nice, you know. You're actually wrestling with very human things, but this sense of I don't know, continuing process, seeing mm -hmm. people for who they are and mm -hmm. and who they're becoming. Yeah, you know one of the one of the practices that I just love that again I learned from the Quaker tradition is is a, is a kind of space between us where. We do, in fact, disagree. We know we mm -hmm. disagree, but we yeah. somehow want to make progress in mutual understanding. We, in other words, we want to explore our differences without blowing up the community. And so yeah. a first important step in that direction is to have a meeting where the ground rules are, you can say anything you like about this issue. That, that's your right, that's your freedom. But instead of running at another person, with your truth contrasted with her truth, you speak in a way that lays it alongside all the other truths that have been expressed so that we all have a chance to hear openly different voices on the same issue without those voices being posed as a pitched battle, but rather expressions of one person's truth, another person's truth, yet another person's truth, way of looking, however you want to name it, and laid alongside each other, we have a chance to sort of study a smorgasbord, you know, to yeah. look at a menu of options, and to ask those honest, open questions that help us understand why another person believes something so radically different from what we believe. It really is possible, I think, for a progressive and a deeply conservative person to occupy together a space where each has a chance to lay out the world as they see it, or the issue as they see it, and then be asked by each other honest, open questions that, that aren't an effort to bring everything to resolution, but yeah. are an effort to understand where this is coming from in that person's experience. You know, you and I have often quoted what I think by now is an old saw, which is the more you know about another person's story, the less possible it is to dislike, distrust, or dismiss them. And yes. that's, that's really true. And, and a space of the sort I've just described is not only a chance to hear another person's point of view, 
on a contentious issue, but also a chance to ask questions that get at the life story behind that point of view. We may not end up agreeing or changing each other's minds, but we almost always end up with deeper, with respect, creating a relational container that keeps us in relationship rather than blowing us apart. Well, I remember a conversation we had uh, with author and Rabbi Ariel Berger. He talked about if we can step back a little bit from our disagreement to hear the story, that creates a space. And in that space, something creative might happen. Something creative that might not have happened otherwise. And I, I, I have held that ever since, you know, Ariel talked about it. And you often, one of your phrases that you've spoken to me, um, when in doubt, turn to wonder. Mm-hmm. And that creating just a little bit of space there for something creative to happen. Um, and I, you know, when we talk about someone being in a space where can someone conservative and someone progressive could could hear one another's stories, create a little open space for the miraculous or something creative to happen. But I think that even is needed with people who feel like they're generally of like minds. You know, when there becomes like uh, the progressive litmus test, you know, mm-hmm. it can get really toxic, even among people we think of as being generally mm-hmm. um, somewhere close to where we are in, in our our value system and belief system. And and that can be really disconcerting. And I think it's the same process of finding, turning to wonder, creating enough space to hear the story so that something creative might actually happen there. And I would just add one more marker to that, knowing that it's more important to be in right relationship than to be yes. right. Um, and I think yes. that a lot of, a lot of, what we're talking about here is is about knowing how to be in right relationship. You know, at this point in the conversation, I'm I'm tempted to make a turn because I think we are closing in on the end of the podcast. If I if I'm not too far off in my time, and we've got some things to talk about yet. Um, one of the things we wanted to cover today, and I'm now thinking of it as a kind of takeaway is some work I've been doing around three basic human needs, as I see them right now, um, that can and should and I think must be met through the kinds of spaces that we're talking about. And it, and it may be that if, if we were to explore these three needs, Carrie, I could name them, we could talk together about them sort of one by one. Mm-hmm. It may be <clears throat> that listeners could note these, think about them. If they don't like the list, make their own list. But a next step in their own explorations in this topic would be, given whatever need I want to think about, how could I get that met for the people in my life, for the communities that I belong to, for the way I'm engaging the world? Should we take that step? Oh, that'd be great. Okay, so I've got these three. Let's do them one at a time. Okay. So number one, number one, people need to feel seen and heard for who they are and for what they are becoming as they seek purpose, meaning, and a sense of vocation. 
that's a hard need to meet in a mass society that leaves so many folks feeling anonymous and ignored. I'm just going to stop right there. People need to feel seen and heard for who they are and for what they are becoming as they seek purpose, meaning, and a sense of vocation. Um, That seems to me to be a core need that I just hear a lot of pain around it not being met in our society, where so many people feel faceless and nameless, ignored, unseen, unheard. Uh, And it's important to note they want to be seen not only for who they are, but for who they are becoming, because we're all in a process of becoming and we're all looking for support on that journey. Well, in a safe and welcoming space, I do think about um, spiritual community. And uh, I think a lot of people coming back after COVID and looking for spiritual community are not interested in um, arguing about what color the seat cushions are anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, what does love made visible look like in my life? And what does it look like as I interact? in the community and the greater community and the wider community. So so I think there's a sense of finding a, a place where that process of becoming, um, of envisioning, is welcome. It's like, nope, we do it this way, <laughs> and there's a little box here, and if you don't fit in the little box, mm-hmm. we're not really too interested in what you have to say. So yeah. I think I think that's important that here I am, I'm in process, I'm envisioning, and also in terms of who I am, who I am as a woman, who I am in terms of my sexual identity. You know, I mean, there's a whole lot of ways that people do not feel safe showing up as themselves. So um, I think I think that's a, a really important, you know, that this first of the three is mm-hmm. a really important need right now. You know, I've always thought, uh, you mentioned spiritual communities, whether those are of a traditional nature or what some have called the emerging church or the emerging spiritual community movement, even beyond church. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always thought that a that a, a good litmus test, a kind of gut check question for spiritual communities, is this: Are are we giving answers to questions that people are no longer asking? You know, uh, be, because in a lot of cases, I believe that's the case. We have this stock store of answers to the dilemmas of human life, but they aren't responsive to the questions that people are asking. And um, I think if we tried that litmus test on ourselves, whoever, whatever it is we're doing, including my work, your work, you know, we might do some of the growing we all need to do. But I do believe that one of these, the questions people are asking is, where and how can I feel seen and heard for who I am and for what I'm becoming? And this is in large and small community. I mean, this is, could be a traditional uh, spiritual community, or it could be, like, I find great community. I work with a group of women on mm-hmm. my friend's farm mm-hmm. uh, once a week. Mm-hmm. And I think of that as one of my most cherished spiritual communities yeah so it can be large or small they can look in all different kinds of there's a lot of different ways that looks could be two people you know couples can relate that way Uh, Mm -hmm. partners can relate that way Um, i think again the litmus test is are we 
attempting at least, are we trying to be intentional about serving each other's quest for meaning, purpose, vocation, identity, and integrity? So secondly, people are looking for a form of community that offers mutual responsibility without suppressing the individual's uniqueness and inner journey. And that's hard to find in a, in a culture where community often means conforming to a group norm in order to be accepted. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a huge confusion sometimes about what community means. And if the doorway into community for folks is, look, sign up for our belief system, uh, talk as we do, act as we do, think as we do, that's not what people are looking for, um, unless it is one of these unhealthy forms of community that we referred to earlier. That's essentially mm -hmm. what the Third Reich was, and that's essentially what some political movements in our own day demand. You know, we'll welcome you in as long as you think, believe, act, speak, do the same dance we do, but you know, diverge from that to any significant degree, and you're gone. Um, that, so people are looking for a, a place that has the marks of genuine community, which includes mutual responsibility. Like, mm -hmm. our lives impinge on each other, and we need to be held accountable and hold each other accountable for those ways in which the impingement is unhealthy or unhelpful, but without suppressing the individual's uniqueness and inner journey. It's a hard kind of community to find, but it's, it's possible. It's doable. Balancing, yes. That idea of responsibility to one another and then allowing that growth that we talked about, kind of in a, in a way talking about what was in that first one you talked about, that who we're becoming, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but we are connected. And how, how we engage in that community, how we act, what we say, does affect one another. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a certain intentionality of care mm -hmm. there. Yeah, and it, it, it really runs very directly counter to this notion, which is somehow appealing. I find it appalling today that uh, I can do anything I want with my freedom, no matter how it impacts you. Um, that, that's the end of the social contract. That's the war of all against all. That's nature yeah. red in tooth and claw. That, among you know, is, among other things, uh, horrifically high rates of mass murders and kids dying in school and people dying in theaters and at entertainment events and in hospitals and public buildings, that's where that goes. Uh, and people are looking for a form of community that goes toward responsibility, to use the word that you just used. And, you know, there was a, I was thinking of a theologian named H. Richard Niebuhr, mm -hmm. a brother of Reinhold Niebuhr, who had this wonderful, simple definition of responsibility he said, responsibility in life starts with the ability to respond. Mm. The ability to respond to the other person as he or she is. I sometimes think, gosh, I, I, I need to keep that before me as a litmus test. I'm, yeah. I'm reacting here 
in this relationship. But am I responding? Or, is, yeah. or was something just triggered in me, like a knee-jerk reaction? Am I looking at this person? Am I seeing and hearing this person? Am I doing my best to see what's between the lines? And, and am I being responsible to that? Do I have the ability to respond? And, and also, I just want to put in that in community, <laughs> I don't know about you, but in my life, there will always be someone who shows up who really pushes my edge. Oh, it's like, right. I mean, there's always going to be someone who uh, is somehow not like me in one way or another, you know, and kind of pushes my edges. Or maybe they are like me, and that's what's really problem. <laughs> it's like, hmm. <laughs> sort but, of a mirror to yourself. Yeah. yeah, and it's like, and that piece of, of it um, is an opportunity to grow mm-hmm. if, I, if I don't bail, mm-hmm. you know, if I kind of hang with it. Uh, and I think that has to do with your number three. I'll, I'll let you read that one. Third, number three, in our conflicted time, people want to know that it's possible to meet and build trust across lines of difference. They want an experience of diversity that leads to personal, cultural, and political enrichment and creativity, not the suspicion, resentment, and anger we live with right now. So once again, in our conflicted time, people want to know that it's possible to meet and build trust across lines of difference. I think that's a biggie for people because when you have zero experience of being able to do that in diverse company, you you can't help but live every moment of every day in with profound distrust and profound anxiety about the possibility of something blowing up in your face. You, you, you have to feel that you're in an unsafe environment all the time because we live in a very diverse world. And when people get to that point of fear and paranoia, really, really bad things happen. And I don't think we have to look very far in, any, in the news of any day to see what some of those bad things are. So anytime we, in the microcosm, we can deal with the differences among us, and I'm, I'm not talking only about racial differences, ethnic differences, differences in sexual orientation or gender identity. Those, those are the, you know, some of the big headline grabbers of our time. But I'm talking about the differences between people who look very much the same on the surface, but who hold really different understandings of what life is all about, or who who are struggling with really with what they regard as shameful um, experiences or flaws or failures that, if revealed, would lead them to being marginalized by the folks they usually hang out with. I used to get a lot of calls carry early in my career from clergy who would say, can, can you help come to our homogeneous white congregation and help us become more diverse? And I said, no way. <laughs> and, and they said, what? <laughs> well, we, we thought you were, you know, a good liberal Christian fellow. And I said, I, I, would, I, I won't do that as long as you maintain the myth that you're a homogeneous white community. There's no such thing 
as a homogeneous white community. There's only a bunch of white people pretending that they agree on everything so as not to expose the flashpoints that they fear will blow the whole thing up. So if you guys can't even deal with your own internal differences, why would someone with a visible difference want to join you? Uh, it's an impossible situation. So it doesn't matter. We don't have to wait you know, for the day when our white congregations are thoroughly racially mixed. We can start right now, and it's the only place to start with the differences between us and become more courageous about creating spaces where they can be brought forward in a life-giving manner. And I think it's really important right now to have those experiences, you know, to seek out where those experiences... We need to build our, again, our, our, that, those trust muscles. And one of the things I talk about with people, you know, you've, you've, it's a term that you use, the news of the world and the news of the heart. The news of the world tells you that there are divisions and there's no bridges. And be afraid, be very afraid, and then be enraged, and then be more afraid, you know. But the news of the heart is like asking, do you know anyone personally, you know, who has a good heart, is doing the best they can, is reaching across all kinds of lines in their own life, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's for the food bank or for, you know, family. The family is another microcosm there. Um, people doing those, that, that reaching across, trying to build communities of care um, in all kinds of ways. And it's there. It's all over the place. We find it. Uh, we all know people who are doing that. Most of us would identify ourselves as mm -hmm. a person trying to do that. Absolutely. So, So I think... You know, kind of creating, you know, and, and strengthening that muscle again, being able to see where where we are doing that and how to expand it, you know. I love that you define given language. When when we first started talking about this podcast and you gave those three ideas of the things, the needs that we're longing to have met in intentional space, you know, I think it, it was so great because it gave me language for something that had been, I'd been writing poems about, do, trying to do music about. I mean, it was, I didn't quite have the concise language for it yet. So I really appreciate, Parker, uh, the way you've put it into words in a way that, ah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, thank you. I, I love playing with words with you and with our listeners, and a lot of them love wordplay too, so we'll keep at it. Well, as we're kind of, you know, talking about wordplay and how much we both love language so much, uh, we talked about ending our podcast with uh, a, a favorite poem called A Ritual to Read to Each Other by William Safford. I think that would be a great way to kind of um, bring bring our podcast around. Would you mind reading that, Parker? I'd be glad to. A Ritual to Read to Each Other by William Stafford. If you don't know the kind of person I am and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world. 
and following the wrong god home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike. And as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail, but if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel, and maybe the root of all cruelty, to know what occurs, but not recognize the fact. And so, I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider lest the parade of our mutual life gets lost in the dark. Though we could fool each other, we should consider, lest the parade of our mutual life gets lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake, or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes or no or maybe, the signals we give, yes or no or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Mm. Thank you, Parker. I love that poem. Thanks, Carrie. It's been good talking today. It's been great to talk to you today, too. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, and check out our Growing Edge newsletter on Substack so you can join in the conversation too. Now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer, and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production. I love being in community with her. Mm-hmm.